Hello and welcome to The Pain Cave. My name is Jay Friedman. I am your host in The Pain Cave and I am very excited to be joined today by Sanjay Rawal. Sanjay is a filmmaker whose most recent film, 3100 Run and Become, is being released in Los Angeles later this week. Before we get to our conversation with Sanjay, I just wanted to thank everybody for listening and following along. Please, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, or Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you would be so kind as to leave us a review or a rating, that would really help us out. And we hope you continue to enjoy the stuff that we're putting out. We're having a good time doing it, and hopefully you guys are enjoying it as well. So without further ado, my discussion with Sanjay Rawal. So you're getting ready nice. for the premiere. You're heading out later this week, right? Yeah, you know, we, 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 we've been, we've, we've actually had a chance to, to, to screen in a, in a number of cities around the country um, for, you know, a, a, a week or two or sometimes three with five or six shows a day. Oh, that's awesome. And, and we just finished up, uh, you know, six, seven days in New York and then L.A. is next week. Um, but then we released digitally on December 12th nationwide. Oh, okay. Where were you in New York? We, we were at the Village East. Okay, I'm not sure where that is. It's on uh, 12th and 2nd Avenue. It, oh. it's, it's, it's a beautiful, like, I mean, the theater's been there forever. So it's like Art Deco inside. It's actually a, a gorgeous little multiplex. Oh, awesome. Yeah, do, you, are, do you live in Manhattan? I'm in Queens. Been in, in Queens. Queens since 1997. Where were you before that? I was, uh, I, I grew up, actually, I, I spent the first six years of my life in Boulder and then the next chunk in uh, a, a suburb of Oakland and Berkeley in the East Bay. Oh, okay. Okay. And then, so I saw, you know, in doing some reading, you were a, do I say, is it a, a follower of Sri Chinmoy, a disciple? What, what's the term that you? E- either, either way. I mean, either okay. way, it's kind of interchangeable. Okay. Way, okay. Student. Student, okay. Yeah. So, and is that is that what prompted you to move to New York? Was was his teachings and and to to learn directly from him? But you know, it was twofold. It was you know, it was it was ninety percent that, but the other ten percent was that I was so sick of California. <laughs> California. I mean, I, I've spent some time, a little bit of time in the Bay Area. I've spent some time in Southern Cal. I have family in uh, in San Diego, and it's beautiful. And I mean, the Bay Area is really, really fun. But after you're there for a little while, you do get just a weird vibe. I think it's um, it, it's it's funny out there. People, I, I mean, I've, I'm a, a lifelong New Yorker uh, or East Coaster, so I just I don't know if I just get the the way of life. I'm 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 with you. I think my my first real trip to New York at the age of 18, I think as a sophomore, as a junior in college. As soon as I came here and spent a week or two here, I was like, "This is the way the world needs to operate." It's like <laughs> I I, and I I was like, as soon as I graduate and save enough money, I'm out of California. So, but you've only been a filmmaker now for. Uh, a few years, right? This is your third film. Yeah, you know, I, 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 well, I, I, I made a bunch of shorts, but th- that said, I, I, I worked in human rights, and I kind of w- traveled the world and ended up doing projects in forty or fifty countries until I started really helping filmmakers in those far off places on their own documentaries, 
Um, and I, I did I did a few short films that you know they played well um, in, in big film film festivals, but uh, didn't make my first like real you know eighty minute ninety minute film until uh, I mean finished it in twenty fourteen. So yeah, six or seven years. It's okay, not, not a very long career so far. Right, and when you were working as a human rights uh, activist, were you working for like an NGO or for a, a nonprofit? How did that work? I, I, it was a mixture of everything. I had my own consulting company. So oh, okay. I worked, with, I worked with a lot of nonprofits, but I also worked directly with community groups and with villages, um, some large foundations, some governments, including the U.S. government here and there. So it was like, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> right, right. That must have been incredibly gratifying and frustrating at the same time. You know, it, 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 it gave me, to, to be honest, it's like, the thing I took mo- away most from it is it made me feel very comfortable with people that I had nothing in common with. Huh. You know, and that's, that, that's kind of a, you, you feel it more on the East Coast and New York City, especially where everybody just kind of jammed in together. Right. But I, I remember taking one trip to the Gambia and, you know, I was with 18 or 19 friends, like all Westerners, and we had a lot of gear with us and... You know, the, the van didn't show up to, to take us to the hotel. And it was like 930. The airport had shut down. And, you know, I, I hitched a ride in the back of somebody's truck to the Capitol, uh, waved down a big van and, and got back in it. There's no streetlights, nothing. And all my friends thought I was murdered because no cell phones work there. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's like n- nobody else is doing anything. And it's like, you know, people are people. Um, so, like. You know, didn't really feel uncomfortable just hitching a ride on the side of a road in a country that I'd never been in before. Right. Wow. You must have a, a zillion stories like that. Not not all with happy endings. Yeah, yeah a lot, I can a lot, of, a lot of stories. <laughs> all right. Well, before we get into the movie, I, and I finished it this weekend, it is really uh, just an amazing work of, of movie making. And I, I'm I'm not a you know, a movie expert or anything like that, but it definitely grabbed me. And I think we'll grab a lot of people, even those who are not kind of fully immersed into the world of ultra running, because as, as you had said, I think somewhere in, in the, the materials that came with it, it's, it's not just a running movie. It's, it's about more than that. But before we get into that, let's, let's talk a little bit about Sri Chinmoy, uh, who he was and what that's about, because I think some people may be aware of the self-transcendence run in New York, which I've been aware of for many years, and I knew it had a, I want to say, spiritual tie to uh, Sri Chinmoy and his teachings, but beyond that, I didn't know anything about who he was or what the kind of philosophy behind his teachings and behind the run really was. So can you tell us a little bit about that to kind of lay the groundwork for what we're talking about? You know, this is the fascinating thing, like... I began kind of being drawn to, to spirituality, you know, as a student in college. And most of the paths that I'd, I'd read about required people to really separate themselves, like join monasteries or, you know, really change their outer appearance and their location in order to, to feel like they were making spiritual progress or becoming better people. Um, and when I learned about Sri Chinmoy's path, you know, I, I was you know, frankly heartened because his philosophy was very clear that, you know, you can't make progress. You can't become a better person this day and age if you separate yourself from the world. Hmm. You know, spirituality and like immersion into the outer world have to go together. 
And, you know, a, a lot of teachers, you know, in the Hindu tradition, we call them gurus, you know, live in beautiful places like Kauai or Bali. And like uh, Sri Chinmoy moved from South India from an ashram to New York City and ended up like headquartering himself in Jamaica Hills, Queens, which <laughs> is not like, oh, my God, it's like <laughs> nobody's idea of paradise. Nobody. So it's like, I, I'm, you know, I, I moved from Berkeley, California, from Cal <laughs> To Jamaica, Queens, to find inner peace, right. and it's, it's it's crazy. But the weird thing is, I kind of did, you know, like that. His philosophy really focused not just on like the development of spiritual qualities like empathy and oneness, but it's like it helped to kind of direct me, and I know other people just from examples, you know, to kind of find their purpose in life and find more to live for no matter what they did, whether they worked in a diner or whether they worked in human rights, like his philosophy showed that like, you don't have to like be mother Teresa in order to, to kind of see the divine everywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the exciting, the exciting thing for me was that he really felt that the importance of strengthening the body that, you know, unlike a lot of other spiritual paths that really eschew the progress of the body, uh, like the body is like a detriment to spiritual progress. You just sit in a corner and like meditate for hours at a time, which isn't bad. Um, but, you know, he really incorporated running mm -hmm. of all things. And it wasn't just like um, a metaphor, like, you know, we all we're all running towards some like, you know, golden future. It was literally the body could get a sense of what it feels like to be spiritual through running. And I think this is something that a lot of runners can can obviously identify with. You know, right. in, in, in from a spiritual standpoint, it's really hard to place milestones in our life where we made big turning points and really felt how much we'd achieved over a period of time, six months or a year or five years. Um, you know, it just feels like spirituality is a continuum. But with with running, you literally feel when you've transcended yourself, when you've either had a better time or you've kind of, like you said, like gone into the pain cave and come out of it uh, right. a, different per a different person. The idea of self-transcendence, it's a very spiritual concept, like you know, competing with yourself, doing better than yourself, conquering jealousy and insecurity. But one of the best ways to experience that on a regular kind of like obvious basis is running. Um, and so from the mid-70s, you know, he was as involved with the running boom in New York City as anyone. Right. And if you can imagine, like the day before the 1977 and 1978 New York City marathons in like 1970s New York City, you know, they had Sri Chinmoy lead, you know, the masses in lieu of an expo, kind of lead the masses in a meditation. Right. That's, I mean, that was the that was the roadrunners back then. It was like the idea was like running was counterculture in the same way that like pursuing Eastern mysticism was counterculture. And the two were seen going hand in hand. And that's a, uh, I think the, the overriding theme of the film is that not just among followers of Sri Chinmoy or, or among Western cultures is this the, the case that this recognition of running as a kind of spiritual undertaking and as a, a meditative and, and a, a contemplative event really is a pervasive thought throughout different cultures. And you spend a good bit of the film examining kind of in in tandem or or as as we're following the runners in the self-transcendence run you've traveled all over the world to show us other examples of cultures where 
this kind of spiritual underpinning of just running and of, and of just kind of continuous physical being is also considered a path towards self-improvement and towards, um, not to sound trite, but towards enlightenment. That, that, that's correct. And I, I, I still don't really know how it happened, but, you know, we, we lived with the Bushmen for, you know, three weeks at, at a time when the government wasn't allowing anybody from outside the country to spend any time with the Bushmen. Yeah, I wanted because to ask you about that. They're basically trying to wipe them out. Right. I mean, at the same time, like we got permission to film with the marathon monks um, outside Kyoto, the first film crew that's been allowed there in almost 40 years. And the Navajo, the third part, in addition to the self-transcendence race, like they've never allowed their running prayers to be recorded. Um, but everybody kind of opened it all up for us because I, I think we're just in a moment where a lot of not a lot of traditional running cultures and cultures that run for spiritual purposes realize that you know there's very few things in this world you know that really kind of bring people together like food does music does maybe dance to some degree but i mean you tell me like when you when you run an ultra have you ever thought of anyone else's political persuasion like when <laughs> when you cross at the the, the finish line of a you know, 50 miler or a hundred miler and look around, are you thinking of anyone's ethnicity or religious background? No, of course not. Yeah. So it's like, we can count on our hand, like how many activities there are like that. Right. And so I, th I think like this, this, the spirit of like really obliterating your own personal barriers, like earns respect through running in a way that, you know, wipes away any kind of differences. Did you know that this was the kind of the, the import of the film when you were going into making it, or did you just set out to document just the run itself and kind of this kind of came about more uh, organically? Or did you, I mean, did you have a sense that, you know, you wanted to kind of bring in these other cultures to kind of show that, that this was a, a universal, uh, uh, whatever the word is I'm looking for. <laughs> like, no, did, I, did you I, know I, that I, going I in or you. did you stumble upon that? So you know, I, I I'm 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 never I'm not a pro runner, and I'm although at one point I had aspirations to 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 you know to do well, um, you know I've I've always kind of been on the fringes of running culture, but I've 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 read all the books like you know Born to Run and I've crewed at races, mm -hmm. and I I felt that at least in 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 Western literature, you know something that seems so explicit and obvious to me and and to people that I've I've, I've helped you know, was missing. And, and that was the idea of like, you know, deepening one's faith and we'll say God or the divine, whatever tradition people come from through running. It's like, even you, you, t you can tell me this too. It's like when you're in that pain cave, people pray hard. Like, when sure, you're trying, sure. it's like, we have the, we, no matter what someone's religious persuasions or agnosticism is like, it's like when you're desperate, like you're praying for anything. You know, you're pleading with anything that'll listen to you, whether you've had an experience with that or not. Um, and, and so, like, what, after I, I, you know, read Born to Run, I felt like, you know, that kind of a key part of that whole theory of ancient running was, was missing. Um, and I didn't really know how to tackle it and, until I really explored what was right in front of me. I mean, I live in the same neighborhood as a self-transcendence 3,100-mile race. Mm -hmm. And I, I moved to New York in 1997, the same summer that that race started. And some friends of mine had done it over and over and over and over. And I realized that their approach to that race 
was deeply spiritual, that they went into it, you know, knowing that the race was going to make them a better person. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, I, and I say this from an Eastern standpoint, being East Indian, I, I think that, you know, people are really having, having an aversion for whatever reason to Caucasians talking about their spirituality. Right. Um, there's like this fear of faith in this country and in the West in general. I mean, like all, all the stuff that's out there in terms of media is like, like anti-faith. Like, you know, you've got like Wild Country on Netflix. You've got, you know, that show on Hulu. I think it's called The Path. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there's a bunch of stuff that looks at, you know, faith in a non-traditional way and looks at it as kind of kooky. Um, so to kind of circumvent that, I wanted to show that the ideas behind ultra running and the 3100, you know, even though Westerners are the predominant, you know, like faces there, you know, they're ancient. And I wanted to show people, you know, body types, ethnicities that seemed much more believable. It seemed like they had, had much less bias. Right. Um, and so that, that was the, I, that was the reason for, from the beginning, planning on really sh- revealing the faith and the spirituality of ultra running through cultures that look the part. Right, right. And it's interesting you mentioned, as you said, you know, you kind of got to know people who kept coming back to this event, which is obviously so long and so grueling. In some ways, it's, it's again, because it's uh, a spiritual and, and a kind of a self-awakening kind of thing. But, you know... It, the the film does a good job in in bringing out the fact that for many of these runners it's a competitive event as well and i think they're they're really looking for both things i mean you you spend the the majority of the film is follow, following um Ashprihanal Alto the the defending champion this race this was uh filmed in the 2016 race is that correct that's correct yeah so and and Ashprihanal had just set the the world record the year before in 2015 which i think was his his eighth win if i'm not mistaken that's correct. And it's uh, some of my favorite parts uh, of the film are him almost struggling with the idea of coming back again. You have that great scene early on in Helsinki where he's in a coffee house with his, his mentor or, and, and they're talking about whether or not he's going to do the race again. And he, he explicitly says, I, I don't know what I have left to prove. And I'm kind of <laughs> sick around, of going around that block. <laughs> you know, at that point, he's been around that that one block in Queens, God knows how many thousands of times. I mean, he's he's won it eight times and done it 13 times or whatever it is. And you can kind of see that conflict of even throughout the entire film uh, as it gets later on. And, and he he had struggled early on in the race. And then as, as the kind of the finish line approaches, he's, he's really trying to, to make up the ground that he's uh, surrendered early on to, to some of his competitors. And he's definitely, he seems, uh, I don't want to say conflicted, but at the end, almost ambivalent about the fact that he's finished because he lost. And it becomes clear how much of this really is competitive for him, as well as being uh, a spiritual undertaking. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's always a struggle, right? It's like, we know that races, no matter what our capacity is, challenge us. You know, they, they they not only give us a goal, but they kind of force us to, you know, look at ourselves and look at our weaknesses and try to challenge them in a very finite period of time, whether, you know, it's like, like you know, your recent experience at Leadville or whether it, it's a shorter race. And no matter who we are, we, we, there's, there's always a tremendous amount of fear 
and like towing the starting line. And, and I, I think that's what it was like for him. It was just like, you know, do I have what it takes in terms of like my own, like my, my own determination Mm-hmm. to really challenge my weaknesses if they're brought out. Right. And and I think that that was that 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 was the issue in 2016 without really giving anything away. You know, he didn't think that he would be so close to um the 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 the, the leader or, or you know near the top of the leaderboard when he was. And so it's a challenge saying like, you know, am I going to look at this particular race as a unique experience, even though I'm four or five days slower than I was at my world best time. Right. And am I going to find a way to get something positive out of it? Um, and, you know, in the heat of the moment, it's like, you know, re- results mean something. And I, I think that since that race, you know, he's kind of come to terms with with what that experience was. And he's, he's without, again, for the listeners, not being too, like, opaque, and he's coming back in 2018 or 2019 to run the race for the 15th time. Wow. And it's like he, he, he you know, every single time he does it, he knows when he toes the line that he's going to become a better person. But there's always ego involved until you finally conquer it. And when you see that you're not doing as good as you have before and you start measuring yourself against past performances, you know, it's really hard to get joy out of it. And I, I think that his experience in 2016 um, you know, it's only, it's only, it's taken him a couple of years to really absorb that. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point that, uh, the kind of, it, it is hard to remove the ego, even from something that is so on its face and, and explicitly, I don't want to say non-competitive, but, uh, really the, the basis for it is really very internal and, but it, it is still hard to remove kind of the, the striving from that especially when you have so much experience with the event. And, and like you said, it, it's no, knowing what that has taken out of him so many times must be incredibly difficult to keep coming back unless he's finding something meaningful in it each new time, because you're putting yourself through hell over the course of six weeks or seven weeks over and over again. And, and having been there before, he has to know how difficult it is, obviously, so there, there's got to be something more that's that's bringing him back all these times, and he's got to be either feeling like he's growing from it or learning from it or something like that. It can't just be, like you said, the ego or the the um, the striving of it. So I'll I'll take a, a a minor tangent for a second, but it's like it's all in in the name of like East Coast pride. Um, <laughs> like you know, if you think back to Ted Corbett, 1952 Olympic marathoner in Helsinki. Sure. Um, representative of the U.S., you know, he was co-founder of Roadrunners of America, co-founder of the New York Roadrunners, invented modern-day course measurement. But, you know, by the 60s and 70s, he'd kind of become bored of the marathon distance and had pushed into 50 milers and beyond. Mm-hmm. And his, he was famous for his 250, 300-mile uh, training weeks, all run in the city's, city streets of New York. Ashbury Hunnell first started racing in the late 90s doing a now defunct 700 mile race, which was held on Ward's Island. Um, and then he moved to a six and 10 day uh, duo um, in Flushing Meadow Park, which was run by the Sri Chinmoy Marathon team as a revival of the, the six and 10 day races that Sri Chinmoy and Fred LeBeau co sponsored in, in the mid 80s. He's done the 3100. 
14 times now. And so not counting marathons that he's done, New York City marathons, other little races in New York City, this guy who's a, a paper boy in Helsinki doesn't even live in New York City. He's raced, not trained, but raced 53,000 plus miles on the streets or in the parks of New York City. <laughs> that, that's racing a marathon a week for almost 40 years. I mean, even in terms of training, that's like, you know, if you trained 100 miles a week on the streets of New York City, you'd have to do that 10 straight years to get his race mileage. <laughs> so there's something about him that doesn't that that is he's able to find you know something new each lap you know otherwise you just you'd go crazy right i wanted to ask you a little bit about kind of the the nuts and bolts of the filming process itself because i mean obviously you live in in queens and i'm sure you were able to stay at home during the filming but even so this had to be a just an incredibly draining process for you as a filmmaker to be there I assume you were there most days and and this is just even without all the travel to the other locations that we talked about that we'll get a little bit more into but how difficult was this as a filmmaker to be at that corner all the time and and it must have been very grueling for both you and your team to be out there in the heat and on, on so many consecutive days to really be capturing these images you know that 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 that's kind of you but you know like when when our, our discomfort was kind of embarrassing and it was uncomfortable but it was embarrassing because people were you know running 60 65 miles a day in front of us <laughs> but <laughs> at, at, at that 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 that's that's kind of you to point out you know for, from the beginning as as a filmmaker now kind of sounding like a geek you know i don't want i don't want to make the same kind of running film where there's like shaky cameras and like crappy equipment and really no story. Right. Um, beautiful visuals just by virtue of the locations, like some of the great trail running films at the same time, like running is really boring to watch. <laughs> I mean, we, we all love it, but it's like, you know, you try to watch a 10 K on TV and the stupid announcers cut away to like, everything else sure you know while sure. you know nobody came even watch for like 28 minutes <laughs> right <laughs> um so uh, across the span of this this 80 minute movie you know we wanted to to offer imagery that really gave an emotion and our our director of photography our, our cameraman sean kirby you know he shot a lot of fiction scripted films with big names and you know he came to the project you know trying to make running look absolutely unique and emotional and so when we were on the 3100 mile course which is just um, you know a, a 0 0.55 mile sidewalk loop um, around uh, a high school in Jamaica Hills Queens you know he wanted to make sure that every time we, we we shot the race it would look different and while we were out there for most of the 52 days we didn't probably shoot more than 15 or 20 hours you know, we wanted to make sure that every single thing that we captured was entirely unique. Um, and we just waited for those moments of drama. So in a sense, the runners would tease us because we'd set up lawn chairs, we'd get a lot of takeout, have a lot of coolers, <laughs> have all of our equipment on standby until we saw or felt that something was happening or about to happen, or from a visual standpoint, the light changed or something else. Right. The cinematography is noticeably fantastic and like you said it does not look like your standard running movie i mean when you get out west there are some drone shots and such and and i, th I think you even had a what looked like a couple of drone shots 
in Africa when you were tracking the the Bushmen on their hunt. But uh, we, we did, we did. For yeah. the, but for the most part, like th- those drones that we used were like when we had to have entire in, in Arizona, we had to have entirely separate crews because those are like you know those drones cost more than both of my cars put together. <laughs> well, they're definitely beautiful, but. But like you said, you know, we, we've almost become habituated to a lot of these trail running films with just beautiful cinematography and such. But the, the, you definitely get a, a different feel at, from, from other running movies when, you're in, when it's in Queens. And it is, it, it's shot in this very, I, I guess, like almost like a hyper real way. Uh, and it looks, it, does, it looks like narrative movie making, especially when you have these, these kind of uh, tracking shots of the people playing um, handball in the park, or or kids playing on the sprinklers, and then you just pan across, and there's there's Ashbury Handel, uh, you know, running <laughs> just down the block, it, it kind of in the background. It's really it, it's uh, it's striking. That, thank you. I mean, the, you you hit the nail on the head. We we wanted to make this film look like a narrative film. There's there's no talking head interviews. There's no experts. No scientists. Um, there's there's so many people and so many theories change year in and year out. And we wanted to show what the heart of the sport is and what the heart of the sport always has been. Um, so frankly, we, we could have shot almost any race. You know, we could have shot, you know, the, the, the big backyard. We could have shot, you know, you know, Western States, Leadville, any one of these epic races, because I think everybody who, who does those races, you know, you know that when you tow the starting line, you're going to be a different person at the end. Uh, no matter what the experience was, and it was just easier for us, frankly, to do it to do the 3100 mile race because, you know, it has the unusual fact of having been started by by Sri Chinmoy, an Indian spiritual teacher. But you know, from a technical standpoint, if you miss a shot, you know, you know that someone's going to come back around in eight <laughs> nine minutes. If, if you miss that shot in Leadville, you kind of miss that shot. Right, right. Well, Biggs would be fantastic especially because you're seeing a lot of those same kind of mini dramas and such play out, you know, on this, on this repeated scale, like you're talking about. And just the, the difficulty of kind of forcing yourself to restart over and over and over is, I mean, it makes that internal struggle very apparent, I think. Sorry, we're getting I mean, a the, lot of feedback there. The, the, the difficult thing is like, you know, it, it, was, it was obviously really hard to, to get access to the Navajo to get access to the Kalahari Bushmen, to get access to the Japanese monks. But, you know, the 3,100-mile runners also had to allow us to put microphones on them. You know, it, it was a, a really kind of exhausting thing for the participants of the movie. And I, I couldn't, frankly, imagine, like, you know, the, at least the, in this year's bigs, you know, the, the runners doing what they did, you know, having film crews following them around and being mic'd up. Right. You know, it's like that, that that's the one thing that we don't really show in the movie that it was it was a big sacrifice for Ashbihanal, for Shamita and the others to take their focus off what the task was at hand and and have us even just be a presence on the course. Right. I mean, clearly during some of the voiceover sections where they're they're talking about their experiences or what they're struggling with on that day, I mean they're out of breath. Like it's it's clear that they're doing this as they're running around the course, which must have been I mean, obviously, logistically difficult, but, uh, a, you know, a difficult strain on them to kind of bring them mentally out of what they were doing and, and kind of be able to narrate that in real time. Uh, uh, absolutely. You know, we, we also made sure that we weren't shooting every day. We'd shoot, you know, week-long blocks. 
Um, because frankly, it's like, it, it's, it's hard enough going through your own pain, but when you've got cameras and you know, you're being mic'd, you know, it just adds to like the mental torture when you hit those really like, like those low zones. Right. Right. Tell me a little bit about filming in Africa, because when when the movie went there, I, I'm I'm fascinated by that that culture and and the the role that running plays in the Bushmen, in their history and and their culture even to the present day. And like you said, that that culture is very much under uh, under threat from the government. How, how were you guys able to? obtain permission because obviously as you bring out in the movie the the government has outlawed their their method of persistence hunting in an uh what seems like an effort to just make them more dependent on the government itself so obviously you couldn't go to the government and say we're going to film a hunt how, how did all that work logistically and, and what was that experience like filming over there well as, as you mentioned you know the, the, the bushmen are one of the oldest tribes in in the world um and even though we're not all direct descendants of them, they say that evolutionary biologists say that each and every one of us has like Bushman DNA markers. Right. So that, you know, and they're one of the only consistent DNA markers that are uh, across every single ethnicity that are still kind of in existence. You know, they, they, they were left kind of unmolested, unharmed, undisturbed until, you know, essentially the nineties when the government realized that the Kalahari desert you know, even though it was absolutely inhospitable to life, um, you know, it sat on like amazing reserves of natural gas and copper and other other, other minerals. So um, the Bushmen were forcibly resettled, much like native indigenous cultures are in every single country these right. days. Um, but the one thing that was was lost was their ability to to do these, you know, one, two, three, five day persistence hunts. And the government has made a ban on their hunting. Um, but we were connected with a couple of Bushman activists who, you know, were desperate to show that they still are preserving their culture and they wanted the West to know the plight of, of, of their own people. So we, we, we got permits, but we sneaked into the country under the guise of shooting something other than Bushmen. Oh, my um, gosh. We connected with our Bushman characters, but, you know, we, we always stayed you know, lengths apart because there, there were government officials that would meet with us and follow us. And we eventually connected with them in a really remote section of the, of the Kalahari desert and, um, you know, waited until all the rangers were out of range, literally, and then went on a long persistence hunt. Um, we were, we were connected with them through one of their, their law, law firms in London that manages their, you know, their own kind of cases against the government. Mm -hmm. And, and so they, they went into the filming with full understanding of the, of the potential dangers, but with the protection of these giant law firms around the world. Um, so it was really sad because it's like, you know, like the best 800 meter runner I've ever met in my life. And I had a chance to spend time even with Kate Grace, the Olympian mm -hmm. was the, this main hunter in in the film and and he never ran 800 meters in his life but we had him just we, we filmed him running and there, he, he never he never trained he never practiced right but just his cadence his speed 
you know, his like, you know, VO2 capabilities. Yeah. I've never seen anyone run like him. There's one, you don't, you don't see a ton of it in the film. There's, um, you do see a lot of preparation for the hunt and everything, but there's one shot of him. I think it's a drone shot from overhead and he is just running basically flat out across the, the plane uh, in, in like jeans basically. But he looks like, like you said, just the smoothest, most beautiful stride you've ever seen. And, and is, it's so apparent how fast he's running. It's unbelievable. It was just such a great shot. You know, we, 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 the, like, like you said, the majority of, of the narrative was actually us going on a long hunt, which meant that we had to carry all this crap, camera crap with us, <laughs> you know, as we like tried to keep up with the Bushmen right. across, you know, a 16 hour, 17 hour day. Um, but, you know, the day earlier, we, we did throw up a drone in a more controlled environment. And we told this hunter, Gaulo, you know, run to such and such a tree, which was about 200 meters away. And he ran to a tree that was about 600 or 700 meters away, turned around and came back. <laughs> Prob- and, and, and it looked like, you know, across that terrain, he was probably running, you know, at about, you know, a 62, 64 second, 400 meter pace. Sure, I believe that's, that. That's, that's like with bushes and holes. Yeah, in and, jeans. And jeans. And when he came back, he was ready to do it again. So it's like you see somebody do like, you know, 204, 203, 800 as just like I can do 10 repeats of this. And you realize that like in, in the right situation, that guy is like bordering on world class. Right, right. It's really, I, I don't want to say gratifying, but it, it's enlightening, I guess, when you travel to these different cultures and you see how, they all describe the relationship to running in very similar terms or, or in the case of the Japanese monks, not running so much as kind of this long distance persistence hiking. The, the way in which they couch the idea of not just spirituality, but also of the suffering and the discomfort and dealing with that, it, it's, it's almost the same way across all of these different cultures, which I found to be uh, really fascinating. There was the, the one quote that I pulled out from the, the section or one of the sections where you guys were filming in Japan, where the monk, and I, I forget his name, who was, who was narrating it, who was serving as the, um, the guide for the, the monk who was currently on his pilgrimage. He said, we, we choose this path, and so we willingly accept the hardships. And that was... That, that's, I, I hear that uh, echoed in so many interviews or conversations with other ultra runners in, in our culture as well is, you know, we chose this. And, and that's a lot of times how you kind of get yourself through the hard times in a race is like, well, I, I, you know, I, this is what I want to do. I paid for this, so I might as well just get down with the suffering and do it. Uh, and it was, it was great to see how that same thing was brought out in what for the, these uh, running monks in Japan is, is literally a life or death scenario. I mean, I, 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 I love the way you put that. You know, the, what, the, the main reason why I wanted to make the movie is that, you know, from an Eastern standpoint, we, we have a long tradition of, of teachers or gurus, um, you know, and, and you look totally conversely and almost kind of like as a non sequitur, you look at how, how most of us approach running. You know, we're, a lot of us are lucky if we have coaches, but not every coach is necessarily plugged into the, 10,000 years of like formal spirituality around running. Um, and so most of us don't ever have any experiences where we can relate our own kind of like experience, our own spiritual experiences in running with something 
that's more formal or that's more recognizable or more poetic. We all do things for the same reasons, but I think that's, that's why we kind of brought in a Navajo um, runner and his father, his teacher, you know, a Japanese monk and his teacher and, you know, a, a famed Bushman hunter, Gaolo, and kind of his mentor um, to show that, you know, there's a lot of ancient wisdom out there that can reinforce all the reasons why we run and not just reinforce, but kind of give us, you know, a little bit more inspiration. Right. My, my, my high school coach, if, if he had said, and God bless him, but if he'd said what our Navajo character, Sean Martin, says in the film, that running is a prayer. When, when we run, our feet touch Mother Earth. They're praying to Mother Earth. Our, we're breathing in Father Sky. Running is a, a teacher. It helps us to overcome our hardships, to help us learn who we are. Um, and running is a celebration of life. You know, if, if I would kind of began running with that type of a, a, a spiritual framework, you know, I think as a, as a, a youngster, I probably would have got more out of it than I did. Right. No, it's important, I think, and, and that's part of, I think, why a lot of people come to ultra running is because it's it's giving something more than, I, as much as I love cross country and running shorter races and such, it, it is a different kind of experience in a, a long event where you really are, again, I mean, with any with any running endeavor, you're you're ultimately battling yourself but i think that's thrown into very stark relief in the late stages of a hundred miler or in a 24 or 48 hour run of of especially in a, a timed event or a self-supported event like that where you really can't stop any time and it's just the it's you you have to find what it is that's going to keep you going and moving forward I, I think that's obviously what a lot of people are attracted to in our sport uh, I'm, I'm totally with you and and e- even though there's a lot of people who who, who compete and you know, who are really racing and trying to, to grind the rest of us into dust, you know, they're, in those long races, you can't but be confronted with your own mortality. Right. And so, and I think this goes with, with almost any pro anywhere out there that, like, no one's a superhuman. Um, and it's, I think it's, it's laid bare more, more readily in ultra running than, than, let's say, in the 400 meters or 200 or 100 Um where you know that everybody out there is struggling in the same way that you are, even if they're at a, at a much faster pace. Right, right. I found it really interesting. I'm sure you were following at least somewhat Pete Kostelnik a couple of years back when he ran his transcontinental run. That's basically the same distance as the self-transcendence run. They're within probably 30 miles of each other distance-wise. And the records for the same for the two events are within about a day and a half. I found it amazing that you know two very different pursuits of kind of a similar distance really did converge on this like six week time frame in terms of the best athletes in the world doing that. That was just an interesting kind of aside. You know, it it it, it is interesting, and it's it, it's hard for people to kind of compare what those distances are like. But you know, in in 2009, a German named Wolfgang Schwerk, um, you know, set the then course record for the 3,100 mile race at 41 days and change, which is a little over 75 miles a day. And Wolfgang's best 24 hour, I believe, is still second in, second all time, 173 miles or so. Right. Um, behind Janis Kouros's um, unbelievable 188 miles. Unbreakable. But but Ashby Hanal, you know, in ni- in in 2015. 
he finished at 3,100 in, in almost 40 and a half days, which was over almost 77 miles a day. And so it's, you know, he beat, in essence, the record of the, the number two fastest person all time over 24 hours. Um, it's, it's hard to put these types of numbers into context um, because most of us are, are I mean, e- even those who, who do ultras, it's like, you know, that it's, it's almost impossible to even, even, you know, compare, um, times across ultras. Right. So like each race is so unique. Um, but at the same time, like, I, I think that people are just beginning to scratch the surface, you know, across the, the, the potential of multi-days. And one might say that people haven't really kind of like come close to Giannis Kouros's races yet. Yeah, I think a lot of, especially the the longer ones. I mean, some of some of his quote unquote shorter records, such as the hundred mile record, and which has actually gone down, and then the the twenty four hour record. Uh, I mean, the twenty four hour record. I don't think anyone is really going to approach for quite some time. And you look at at those the six day and 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 those sort of things. It's going to be quite some time before anyone is able to approach the kind of things that he was able to do. But we're starting to see, I mean, I think the 24-hour race has taken on, at least in, in American uh, ultra-running circles, in the last few years, it's made a real comeback. I think it had a heyday in probably the 80s and, and even the 70s, and it's been quite some time uh, since we've seen a lot of people running some fast 24-hour races, and that's starting to happen again. So it is, uh, it is interesting how those things kind of go in cycles. I'm I'm excited by that because you know the 3100. There's I think there's only been, God maybe, three American men that have attempted it. Ed Kelly, uh, was, you know had had won it at least at least one or two times. Um, Ray Krolowitz attempted it and I think did around 2400 miles. Um, but you know Ray was well past his prime. Right. And and then Arpan D'Angelo at the age of 52. Uh, completed the distance on the last day. Um, there's been, there was an American woman named Superba Beckard who who completed the race 13 summers in a row. She's wow. from D.C. Um, and then in 2017, an African-American woman, Race Walker, 60 years old at the time, Yolanda Holder, finished with about 15 minutes to spare. <laughs> wow. Um, apart from that, it's like uh, there haven't been Americans because I think the earliest Americans to do it came out of the multi-day craze of the 80s and 90s. Right. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, I, we, we did a, a pre-screening of 3100 at this random multiplex in Denver. Um, actually, just a, 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 a day after the Hard Rock. Okay. Uh, over the summer. And Claire Gallagher, um, Chrissy Mole, and other people who were in town for a, a convention came to the screening. And uh, in the lobby, they they saw Mike Wardian kind of like like uh, amble in with his kids, and they said, "Oh, Mike, you're here to see the movie." He's like, "What movie? What are you talking about?" <laughs> he he said, "I'm here to see Ant Man. We've got 12 <laughs> hours before our flight. The kids want to see Ant Man." And so Claire was like, "Come see the ultra running movie." He's like, "Of course I'll see that." Like I don't. Know. And, and so afterwards, he raises his hand and he basically asks. He says, "Like you know, the 3100. There's no social media." There's almost no web presence. Nobody really knows anything about it. Um, he said, like, how do you get into it? And he said, like, I'm, I'm pretty used to, like, doing, like, really kind of myopic focused records, like running around the deck of a cruise ship or, right. you know, on a treadmill for hours. And, you know, he said, like, this is something that really fascinates me. Uh, Chrissy Moll said the same thing to me. Camille Heron, 
Um, and so I, I, I think it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I, I'm hoping that the movie itself excites more people about the, 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 the logistics of the 3100, you know, really encourages more people to come out and see the race. It's like NASCAR. You're not going to go there and get anything out of a couple laps. But if you bring, you know, a picnic basket and a lawn chair, <laughs> you know, it's it's oddly spectator friendly. Right. Um, and I, I think that over the next few years, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, the, the people that have conquered all these great races, um, like, like the Tim Olsons of the world that also like look at things from a very mindful or spiritual standpoint will kind of like, you know, get inspired um to do this this particular race, which is really it, all it is, is a spiritual experience. Right, right. And I think there's an appetite for it. I mean, we we saw just a couple weeks ago. You mentioned at Big's backyard with the amount of kind of just social media coverage, but the the way that it really did capture the imagination of kind of the whole ultra running world in general. And I think that a lot of these self transcendence runs and the 3100 run in particular does have that potential to do so. So I do think that will increase in the, in the future. What you'd mentioned that, uh, again, it's, it's, it's not a race that many Americans have attempted or completed. And, and in the film, basically everyone that's in the race, I think there are about 12 or 13 starters with the exception of uh, sorry, um, who is, uh, from Finland, everyone else I think is of Eastern European origin. What, why is do, do you have a sense as to why that part of the world has kind of focused or, or been most attracted to this race? Why, why all these competitors are basically coming from that area? You know, it, 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 it's a great question. And I, and I only really have a theory, but you know, like the, those countries were so closed off for so long. I mean, it's, it's only been 30 years since many of them really opened up to the West. Right. It's a um, good point. And so, like, they never had a tradition of, like, ultra running or multi-day running. And it, it's, it's almost like they're at the same stage as, as the U.S. was. In, in the, the 70s the and 80s, right? Yeah, That's 70s, an excellent 80s. point. So they, 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 they love the aspect of, like, running long distances. Just like the ultras didn't necessarily get born out of a desire to run in mountains. It was just like, let's hit 50, let's hit 100, let's hit six days. Right, right. Um, Folks there who have gone well beyond the marathon and even the twenty-four hour, you know, are are trying to like hop onto the multi-day circuit. Right. And right. in terms of multi-days, lastly, like the thirty-one hundred is super cheap. It's like I think it's eleven hundred or twelve hundred dollars for an entry fee. Um, the the race is subsidized by it's literally subsidized by the marathon that's done at Rockland Lake. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's incredibly affordable. And so it's one of the few multi-days that people from Eastern Europe can come to and like afford to do and not just uh have to work for 10 years to do and does the race provide the vans that they're sleeping in or yeah oh wow everything is provided they even they rent apartments actually in the local area uh for people to to sleep in and the the vans in the movie and the rvs are like for 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 like daytime naps right right Um, right and that's all included in that twelve hundred dollars it's amazing yeah uh, Sanjay, thank you so much for coming on. Before I let you go, I need to ask you for your desert island picks. I am going to send you to a desert island for a year, and you are going to have to bring one one book, one album, one food or one meal, and one beer that you can have with you on a desert island. Well, the, 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 the book I'd probably bring is um, – uh, it, it'd have to be something long. 
Oh, um, sure. So, you know, I'm, and, and it would have to, I, I think it would have to be something I could read over and over and over and over. So, you know, like collected poems of Walt Whitman might be kind of cool. Oh, that's uh, an excellent one. Emily Dickinson might be too depressing um, <laughs> for, for that long of a, a period of time. Uh, food. Oh, God, you know, chocolate. I mean, I wouldn't eat anything else. If you just gave me 10,000 Snickers bars, I'd, You're I'd be You're happy, fine. man. Good. Good. One be, album? Be, one album that I could listen to over and over and over. Um, and, and, you know, this is going to give away a little bit, but like probably anything from the 80s. They give me like an, an all time, you know, hits of the cure. It'll probably <laughs> get, get me nice and depressed <laughs> forever. Perfect. Um, I, I, I don't drink alcohol, but I do love non-alcoholic beer. And so there's a weird, there's a weird European alcohol, non-alcoholic beer called Bitburger. Oh, I've uh, heard of Bitburger. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, it doesn't taste like, like uh, gutter water. Um, <laughs> it, it's, so it's a step in the right direction, at least. It's a step in the right direction. So like, I, 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 I'd actually be really happy with that. Sanjay, thank you so much for coming on. The film is called 3100 Run and Become. It is really a fantastic running movie and just a fantastic movie in general. Uh, it opens this Friday, I believe, November 9th in L.A. And good luck with it. And I, I hope uh, it really gains a, a wider audience because it really is a great piece of film. Thanks so much. And, and it, re it releases digitally on iTunes and Amazon in mid-December. But Jason, next time you're in, in, in New York City in the summer, give me a holler. You know, the 3100 starts every year on Father's Day, uh, that Sunday, and runs for 52 days. And I'd, I'd, I'd love to hang out with you at the course and, and really get your play-by-play. Uh, -play. It would be fantastic. I'd love to come down and see it. And uh, I'm sure we have, I know uh, Paul Kentner is a, a mutual friend, and, and yes. uh, I'm sure we'd be able to come out and you know, have a couple of non-alcoholic drinks and take a, take a gander. That'd be great. That would be awesome. Sanjay, thank, thank you. you so much. Everybody else, thanks for joining us in the pain cave. Go watch the movie. And until next time, keep putting one foot in front of the other. The years have been long and tough, but I'm not dead. Happy now just to spend some time with friends and have a roof above my head. I'm not jaded, just been faded Like a good old pair of jeans Rusted like a proud old car That's drove a little too far And seen too much rain But long ago as a child I look about the night sky in wild wonderment And ride the bus and feel upset To think of all the years I'd have to go through that I was still young And I was still